Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 22nd of November 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me by video link, we've got Charles Mallet and Debbie Evans. So welcome both. Now, we're going to get kicked off, of course, with uh, Jeremy Hunt and uh, the uh, autumn statement, uh, which was taking place in the last, it's taking place at the moment, in fact. So we can't bring you up to date with exactly what he has announced. Uh, as if most people will be worried about that anyway. But yesterday he pushed out a little bit of video that I'm going to apologize in advance for showing, but I just wanted to play this and we'll talk about it uh, afterwards. Just have a listen. Inflation has halved, the economy has turned a corner, which is why tomorrow will be an autumn statement for growth. Here's why. The UK economy has access to unrivaled levels of diverse talent. As well as the quality of the education system. And the new industries of this century and everything from life sciences and cell therapy and gene therapy to gaming, AI and so much around the innovation economy. The UK is basically the Silicon Valley of Europe. You know, the government is very responsive uh, to the needs of innovative companies that need to move fast. Things in the last year or so to make, you know, to reform things, to make it easier to do business here, you know, to focus on also not just financial services, but building technology, healthcare, all those things that are, you know, industries of the future. So uh, they should keep on doing that. I'm certainly excited as an early stage investor to be looking at UK talent and funding him. The UK is full of innovative, ambitious, creative people and that energy just needs to get let loose. That's why tomorrow I'll be setting out a plan for the economy packed with ideas for our long-term growth. Tune in tomorrow. See you there. Tomorrow, of course, is today, uh, right at this moment. So long-term growth. But I was just fascinated by that because uh, diverse talent, uh, life sciences, health industry. Uh, health is to be an industry. It's going to be the key industry in the UK. Uh, gaming, of course, uh, and AI. Uh, these are all the key uh, areas that they want to see developed over the next uh, period of time to make Britain a leader in these areas is what they're claiming anyway. Um, so, of course, in terms of what he was announcing today, uh, the only thing that we knew yesterday was that uh, the national living wage was going to go up to £11.44. Uh, this is uh, being described as a pay boost for millions of workers aged 21 and over. So, uh, you know, they're saying that whatever they do today, it's not going to affect inflation. Um, that doesn't seem to, to quite add up there because they're expanding the living wage to extra age groups for a start. But if we just look at uh, some of the other things that were uh, understood yesterday, uh, and this morning, up until the announce, uh, up until he started speaking, that he was very much saying that Britain is on a path to lower taxes. Uh, national insurance cut was going to be likely, 7.8% uh, pension increase. Uh, in fact, before just before we came on air, he did announce 6.7% benefits increase. Some people thought that would be uh, the average uh, inflation figure uh, of 4.6% uh, or the latest inflation figure, sorry. Uh, but in fact, he chose 6.7%. Uh, uh, likely to be increased sanctions on people uh, that are not following the rules as far as the uh, uh, job centres are concerned. So any, anybody on benefits uh, likely to be uh, getting increased sanctions if they're not doing what they're told. Uh, possible fuel duty increase, that remains to be seen. Uh, but the other thing that was sort of announced was uh, that people would be paid uh, for uh, agreeing to have uh, electricity pylons uh, positioned close to their homes. So £1,000 per uh, household uh, if they would agree to the planning uh, restrictions being lifted for electricity pylons being installed. 
Um, but it was this that I really wanted to sort of mention uh, today. This was an exclusive for The Telegraph. Uh, benefits claim it's subject to bank account checks and fraud clampdown. It's being described as a clampdown on fraud, of course. Uh, this reform is designed to reduce soaring number of people on out-of-work uh, welfare. So let's have a look and see what uh, Mel Stride, the Work and Pension Secretary, was saying. Uh, Labour's soft touch to the welfare system is not only reckless, it's unfair. It's no wonder that Labour have never left office with unemployment lower than when they came into power. Uh, these proposals will uh, leave fit and able people dodging their agreed commitments to find employment at the expense of taxpayers, costing hard-working people more than £2 billion over a parliament. So they're talking about uh, allowing the Department of Work and Pensions to, on a monthly basis, review uh, the contents of people's bank accounts, people that are on benefits, to see whether uh, they are uh, correctly declaring what levels of savings that they have. Uh, and therefore be entitled to to check that they're entitled to the benefits uh, that they're claiming. Um, but of course, we should uh, keep in mind what this is about. This is about the fact that an increasing number of people are what is described as either as economically uh, inactive, mostly because of health-related issues. And so while they're trying to claim that this is about keep it getting uh, benefits uh, cheats off the system, I suspect that what's really of concern at the moment for the UK government is the number of people that are applying for uh, additional support because of health-related issues. So if we just have a look at this from the House of Commons Library, how is health affecting uh, economic inactivity? Uh, this is, in fact, from March earlier in the year. And they're saying that economic inactivity has been increasing in the UK. This insight discusses how people leaving the workforce because of ill health affects economic inactivity. And I think, uh, I believe uh, it's now nine point, uh, there's been a, 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 I can't remember the actual figure now off the top of my head, I do apologize for that, but uh, certainly a significant uh, 28, 20, 30%, something around that, uh, of the total number of benefits are now health related. Uh, and of course, this has increased significantly uh, since the uh, the COVID crisis and the lockdown. Uh, and uh, well, Debbie, I don't know what your thoughts are on this, but clearly there is a precedent being set here uh, because uh, government is now claiming the right to access people's personal bank accounts. Uh, but aside from that, we've got to keep in mind that most of these people, significant proportion of them are now suffering ill health as a result of government policy in the first place. Yeah, that's exactly right. And good afternoon, everybody. Um, yes, and, and I'm going to be speaking uh, in the very near future to Ed Dowd, who many people listening will know has done a huge amount of work on DWP and PIP uh, applications since the rollout of the COVID vaccine. And clearly we can see many people off sick, um, long-term sick, and this is obviously going to impact DWP. So if you tie the two things up together, but of course, nobody wants to look at the elephant in the room, which is the rollout of the jabs. Uh, indeed. OK, uh, Charles, let me welcome you to the programme. And uh, well, you've got something on gold. I have, Mike. Thanks very much. And good afternoon. Gold, something that many UK column listeners and viewers may well hold as an investment and currently the subject of a film produced by the World Gold Council. Now. What's interesting about this is that it features and is narrated by the British actor Idris Elba. It seems to concentrate really on the historical significance of gold, its many uses, and above all, its dependability and security as a financial instrument. 
Now, concurrent with this is Idris Elba's fronting of an advertising campaign for an operation known as Stella or the Stella Development Fund, which describes itself as being where blockchain meets the real world. So apparent contradiction between the holding of gold, a physical entity, and the use of blockchain, which is almost the exact opposite. Just to clarify on blockchain, it's a word that gets used a lot these days. I've tried to condense it into a sentence, not my own words, I must admit, uh, to, to describe it as such. The blockchain is a time-stamped series of records of data managed by a cluster of computers and not owned by any single entity. Since it is decentralized, it has no central authority and is open to anyone. So if we just bear that in mind, we'll then look at what Stella is also doing. It's produced a white paper entitled Stella for CBDCs. And within that white paper, there is a text which goes into the acceleration of things due to the COVID pandemic. It says that the COVID pandemic has only accelerated the situation with lawmakers and regulators even more willing to consider new technologies that could improve the lives of their citizens whether focused on increased competition in financial services, greater ease of distributing social benefit payments, or bringing safety and security to the unbanked. Central banks are imagining the promise and possibilities of CBDCs. So it can't be a coincidence. And therefore, we must look now at the Bank of England itself, because, of course, it holds the gold reserves. There's a graph here just to show the holdings currently by weight. The last two years shown, they appear to show a, a decline towards this stage of 2023. In actual fact, that's not really outside of normal bounds for the last 10 years. But what is significant is the Bank of England's relationship with the LBMA, which I've taken some text from, the London Bullion Market Association. And the bank states that the LBMA invites the bank to observe discussions at its board, which are relevant to the bank's custodial function. The bank is not a member of the LBMA, nor its board, and has no regulatory responsibilities for the gold market. Its role is limited to matters affecting its gold custodial responsibilities. To support its role, the bank also observes at the LBMA's physical committee and attends its working group. So essentially, the bank is at pains to distance itself from the LBMA, but, of course, there is a very close relationship. And this is pertinent because in 2021, the LBMA produced a report by Stephen Lowe called the Digital Gold Special Report. When and not if will the potential be realized? And essentially, Lowe puts forward the view that he thinks it's unlikely to be something that's going to happen anytime soon. But what he does say is that most experts refer to the need for a replumbing of the whole financial system to create digital payment rails. This infrastructure is necessary, and until this occurs, large-scale digital gold adoption will be limited. Now, what he's really suggesting here is that the entire financial system must collapse in order for this to work. So it's been an offer, uh, it's been a, a concept that the Bank of England have talked about a lot. They've consulted on it earlier this year. 
They also ran something called Project Rosalind, which was a, effectively a tabletop exercise with the Bank for International Settlements uh, concept development. And from this, there is the the suggestion, at least by a commentator. Um, sorry, Stephanie, just have the next piece, please. Uh, sorry, this is just to show the logo, how it's changed from Britannia with a pile of coins and now not due to the fact the coins are no longer issued. But Ledger Insights, um, again, talks about the pains the bank goes to to state that the currency will not be programmable at the core layer and refers again to the consultation. But we go back to the World Gold Council, who have a slightly different point of view. And in their executive summary on central bank digital currencies, they state that money can become programmable, allowing policymakers to incentivize certain spending behaviors that can optimize economic impact or address social concerns. The trackable nature of CBDCs can also help to deter financial crimes. So this is really the conceptual background to it. I now want to have a quick look at the practical delivery and in a way to get a sense of how close this is to reality. So we'll have a quick look at what's going on in Southern Africa, which involves again, Stella, who we've mentioned earlier. Stella has set up a platform called the Uhuru Wallet, which is used in Zimbabwe and South Africa. It combines digital identity and remittance services. Now, the irony of using the word Uhuru should not be lost. It is the Swahili word for freedom, but it's built on the Stellar blockchain. Um, perhaps of more relevance to the UK audience is the fact that Stella is also involved in Ukraine. And this goes back to 2021, when the Ukrainian government picked Stella as their partner agency upon which to build their forthcoming digital currency. And within this article, it is stated, or at least within the announcement, that uh, they've chosen the Stella blockchain network as a platform to build a central bank digital currency. The Ministry of Digital Transformation of Ukraine signed a memorandum of understanding with the Stella Development Foundation to build out a virtual assets ecosystem and national digital currency of Ukraine. So what we have here really is the convergence of security and convenience and the suggestion that just because well-known crypto assets like Bitcoin are not backed by anything real, the idea here is to present gold as something that will fill that void in order to nudge people towards the, uh, the idea that a digital currency, a central bank digital currency, if backed by gold, is, as I say, convenient and secure. Of course, the thing that merits further research is what this may do to the value of gold that is held by individual investors and how the future might be shaped by this. Uh, that's a good question. But of course, an aspect of what you were just discussing, Charles, is the fact that uh, uh, this uh, digital currency will be used as a method of uh, controlling people's behavior in a sense. And uh, that brings us back to the announcement from Jeremy Hunt of uh, a government uh, taking it upon themselves to look inside people's personal bank accounts. Uh, that sets a, d a dangerous precedent. I appreciate that 
uh, they're claiming it or they're wrapping it up in the in the moniker of fraud. But we have to we, we just have to wait to see what the detail of that is. Uh, Debbie, let's uh, let's move to you now. And uh, well, Crest, what's that? Yeah, let me lead you gently into a little journey that I've gone on. Um, but first of all, let's have a look at the definition of vaccination, because I want to just clarify with everyone that I've checked a number of sources. As you can see, Cambridge Dictionary and the World Health Organization both pretty much saying the same, that the vaccination or an act of giving someone a vaccine or a substance to put into someone's body. So I've got another couple of little... Um, uh, if you go to the next slide, there you go. You've got Merriam-Webster and CDC giving you a definition of the same term. But then I found an academic paper which rung a few alarm bells in my head. And you can see the title there. It says Social Vaccine in COVID-19 Pandemic. And it talks very much about um, vaccinating the population against environmental factors, such as perhaps misinformation. So I decided to go a little bit deeper. Now, do you remember, um, I've been talking before about Professor Sander van der Linden. It's a bit of a mouthful, but Professor Sander van der Linden is a behavioural psychologist and he runs the Cambridge Behavioural Lab. Now, for anybody that doesn't remember him, if you go back to UK Column News, um, I covered uh, Professor Sander van der Linden in depth so UK Column News, 11th of May, 2022. Um, please go and have a look at that and then you can find out exactly who he is. But he's been busy because he's been writing another book. And the book is called Foolproof, Why Misinformation Infects Our Minds. Can you see where this is going? Infects Our Minds and How to Build immunity and uh, he's had a few reviews for the for the book so let's look at one of the reviews because i'm sure that you'll recognize the face of mariana spring um a little bit about sander van der linden up there just to say that he's an advisor to the government and that he's a professor and then you've got the editorial review from mariana saying an insightful and forensic examination of why our brains entertain disinformation and the remedies that can protect us all from its real world harm for everyone who messages me asking how they can speak to someone who has fallen victim to online conspiracies, this is the book for you. Let's just remind ourselves, Mariana Spring, who couldn't quite verify her own CV. So the um, Guardian uh, brought up an article uh, uh, that was pretty much reviewing Sander van der Linden's claims on how to diffuse fake news. If we go further into the article, you can see that it talks about uh, conspiracy theories and secret microchips. And apparently we're not clever enough to be able to discern. So we can't filter out misinformation. So how can we inoculate our friends and family to make them less susceptible to propaganda? And the public really do need to play their part. Well, let's have a listen to the dark arts teacher himself, Professor Sander van der Linden. So to translate our theoretical findings into real-world interventions, such as the games that we've developed, we've teamed up with organizations, governments, and social media companies around the world. An example of which is Go Viral, our intervention that helps people spot fake news about COVID-19, which we developed together with the Cabinet Office here in the United Kingdom, and with assistance from the World Health Organization and the United Nations Verified Campaign, who together helped identify audiences that are vulnerable to fake news about COVID-19 so that we can actually get this intervention out to those who need it the most. We teamed up 
with the gaming company and we created a game called Bad News. It simulates a social media feed and it gives users a taste of what it's like to spread misinformation by engaging with weakened doses of the techniques that are used to deceive people. And these techniques include things like polarization and conspiracy theories and impersonating other people online like fake experts. And what we found in our research is that when people go through our interventions, they become better at spotting fake news, they become more confident in their own ability to discern fact from fiction, and they report to share less fake news with people in their network. With any vaccine, it wears off over time. So when we follow up with people month after month, week after week, what we find is that we can maintain a certain level of immunity if people get regular booster shots. The ultimate benefit of the metaphor uh, lies in herd immunity. What we want to do is have enough people vaccinated so that misinformation won't have a chance to spread uh, in online networks. And the way to do that is to actually try to find out what level of vaccination coverage do we need at a psychological level. And we can do that with computer simulations, for example, to try to predict when herd immunity might emerge and what needs to be done in order to achieve that. So when we look to the future of disinformation and fake news, I think the viral analogy is helpful. Just as viruses mutate over time and become more infectious and more harmful, the same is true for disinformation. The techniques are becoming more advanced. The dark arts of manipulation are evolving. So as Cambridge has informally dubbed me the defense against the dark arts teacher, I can only quote my colleague from Harry Potter, Professor Severus Snape, when he said, our defenses must therefore be as flexible and inventive as the arts that we seek to undo. Is it not hard for democracy to collapse? All you have to do is nothing. Well, I personally find him very dark, but thank you, uh, Professor Sander van der Linden, because he took me to uh, another organization that you may not have heard of, called Crest. Now, I found this article in City Security, which just highlighted that this Crest UK centre is leading security research. And it was started originally in 2015, who knew that? But um, it's kind of got bigger and bigger. So let's have a look at Crest and let's see who they are. And uh, alarmingly, Crest, the UK hubs for behavioural and social science research into security threats. So who are they funded by? So if we go a little further, we can see that they're funded by the Home Office, the intelligent agencies, universities, overseen by the Economic and Social Research Council. Now that's very interesting, the Economic and Social, Re social Research Council, and we'll be doing some more on them later. Um, and uh, what else do we know about them? Well, they also have a little video, and we've got uh, we've got a little snippet. I'm afraid it's a bit of a boring video because there's not very much information about Crest Online but they work with just about every professional and public agency that you can think of. So this is uh, Professor Stacey Conchi, psychologist from Lancaster University, telling you a little bit about Crest. The Centre for Research and Evidence on Security Threats is the UK's independent hub for behavioural and social science and security threats. Now in our sixth year, CREST activities include eight core research programmes, an annual commissioning process, 
a PhD community and an extensive knowledge exchange effort that includes both user-focused outputs and an event programme. The work of CREST is structured around three goals and threads, risk management, human source management and deterrence and disruption. In each case, we have a set of core and commissioned projects that are driving forward the national standard in the area. For example, our work on risk management seeks to ensure the UK uses processes that are fair and effective for all. Our work on human source management seeks to advance knowledge of how to operate online and how to ensure cross-cultural effectiveness. We also work closely with those who share our ambitions around the world, including TSAS, and we seek to play our part in growing the international community. We hold an annual conference, regular workshops, and offer training to early career researchers. Our continued efforts to engage stakeholders within the UK and internationally have resulted in many bilateral projects and contributions, and ultimately to a better understanding on both sides of how behavioural and social science can be exploited. CREST was established to act as a hub that brings together and supports a community of behavioural and social scientists in their efforts to contribute to national security. That mission remains true today. So I just want to flip through a few very quick slides to give you an overview of CREST. So first of all, CREST are involved with PREVENT, counter-terrorism, security and channel. If you go to the next slide, you can see that they've got an autumn review. It's a bit like a comic, but let's go and have a look at some of what's in the uh, autumn review. So there you can see an article by Professor Sand San van der Linden, and that's how we got to Crest. A few numbers of Crest, uh, a few of the numbers of Crest. We've got 12.4 million going in with 23 million following up, 104 research output. 222 researchers, the numbers go on and on. But what was interesting, and I would urge you to screenshot these next two shots because there's so much information in it, but this is your A to Z of misinformation. So this is A to N, and the next screenshot will be O to Z. Do have a look at that because there are some very subtle differences and a lot of things that you might not have already realised. So let's have a couple. Of, uh, let's have a look at a couple of the other articles that they look at: conspiratorial thinking and far-right extremist attitudes. And then we've also got conspiracy theories, their propagation, links to political violence. Go to another page and you can see another few articles there. And really, this website is absolutely full and they're watching you. They're watching what you write, what you put online and, and what you're saying to friends. Um, but of course, we end up where we started with Professor Sander van der Linden. And this probably is my biggest red, red warning flag of all, a psychological vaccine against misinformation. And Stephanie reminded me of Clockwork Orange and said to me, it almost looks as though they're forcing you to see what they want you to see, what the government wants you to see, so that you're not able to discern from what's real and what's false. So that's Crest. Keep an eye out. Uh, thank you, Debbie. We'll talk about uh, that a bit more in extra, I'm sure. Uh, now, if you like what the UK Column does, you'd like to support us, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, your membership, much needed, much appreciated. Uh, you could pick up something at the UK Column shop, uh, maybe a gift for somebody for Christmas. 
but do share anything you find on the various platforms, especially ukcolumn.org and ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. I uh, just want to mention that Andrew, we have a, a, an interview, an exclusive interview with Andrew Bridgen up on the website today. Uh, go and have a look at that. Andrew Bridgen interview, Conspiracy Silence Over Excess Deaths. Uh, Henry Widas did that for us. Uh, and a reminder that uh, Andrew Bridgen will be speaking in the UK Parliament on, the UK on Monday the 4th of December uh, for Democracy, Truth and Freedom. And he is asking everybody to lobby their MP uh, to attend that meeting uh, in Parliament. Uh, and we'll have uh, various people speaking at it, uh, as well as Andrew Bridgen, as you can see on screen. If you want to find out more and see a template letter for this, you can do that at www.saveoursovereignty.co.uk. Uh, Debbie, very briefly, please, uh, your blog is up. It is GPs I'm focusing on. And also thank you so much to Cheryl Granger, who's giving us a very, very good update on COVID-19 vaccines and uh, the ongoing catastrophe. Uh, thank you. And uh, the interview that went out at 1pm yesterday is now on the uh, UK column website uh, entitled Whistleblower, Social Worker Brutalised by Met Police and Social Services for Daring to Protect Children. This is Emma Aaron. Uh, if you didn't see that at 1pm yesterday, please go and have a look at that. Share it as widely as you can. Uh, tomorrow, uh, we have uh, an interview with uh, Kenny Zhu, uh, who is talking about the, the education system in the US, how it beca became infiltrated or uh, taken over by the woke agenda and how families are beginning to fight back on that. Uh, so watch that at 1pm, uh, ukcolumn.org slash live. Uh, and then a, a reminder of the first annual David Ray Griffin lecture, uh, Daniela Gatzer uh, talking about uh, the ruthless empire post 9-11. That's on Sunday, December the 3rd and begins at 6pm UK time, 7pm uh, European time. Uh, get uh, along to that of do watch that again, ukcom.org slash live. In fact, there's a there's a page for that already set up if you want to share the link. So please share that uh, as well. You'll find that on the front page of the UK Column website. Uh, Debbie, let's move on to the MHRA board meeting. MHRA board meeting was yesterday. Thank you so much to everybody that attended. And Malcolm, thank you. It was your first time. Thank you for your comments. If you did go to the MHRA board meeting yesterday and you did witness what I and Cheryl Granger witnessed, please do let me know what you thought of it. So a quick summary. I've written a few notes just on a quick summary. They're pleasing their masters again. Uh, they want international recognition, acceleration of clinical trials. They've been talking about stem cells. Um, they've also been talking about their people strategy. It's all about their people. But I wanted you to go to Hedley Reese's amazing substack because honestly he is packed with information there on the MHRA and we've done loads of work on the revolving door of the MHRA and he goes into it in great depth so I've got a lot to report about the MHRA board meeting I'll be doing that next week and in my blog but needless to say that Cheryl's question again well, it was asked, but the MHRA didn't have an answer. But I'll leave her to tell us about that. Um, and my freedom of information that I wrote to the MHRA about the article that came out in the Telegraph uh, with regards to the AstraZeneca legal case. Shh, don't say anything about it because nobody wants to talk about it, it would seem. So I asked the MHRA if they'd received, uh, if the Telegraph had received a threatening phone call to tell them to back off from the article. And I received this reply um, and I've just highlighted it in red, but you can see that basically they say that uh, no, they 
have absolutely no idea to the best of their uh, to the best of their knowledge uh, they know that it was referred to in the telegraph they know that it was reported but having reviewed their records to the best of their knowledge we have no evidence that any phone call of this nature took place so if there's anybody that's watching from the telegraph who would like to um, just clarify with us, or maybe they've got a recording of the phone call, that would be very helpful. But the MHRA deny all knowledge. Thank you, Debbie. Thank you. Let's uh, move then to the Middle East uh, and uh, Gaza. Uh, and Benjamin Netanyahu, very clear that although there's this four-day pause in fighting has been called, uh, that they haven't announced that yet. This is officially, I mean, it's the announcement of when it exactly is going to start is going to take place in the next 24 hours. Uh, Netanyahu saying, we are at war and we will continue the war until we achieve our goals, eliminate Hamas, return all our abductees and missing persons and ensure that there be no element in Gaza that threatens Israel. So uh, what's been agreed? That, well, they're going to, uh, Hamas is going to release, or the Palestinians are going to release uh, 50 hostages from Gaza uh, all under the age of 19. Israel is then going to release 150 Palestinian women and teenagers uh, held in Israel. Uh, they are also under the age of 19. Um, and uh, But the Israelis have actually published a list of 300, uh, that, uh, 300 names that potentially are going to be released. Now, apparently, this is because there's a, a legal requirement in Israel that uh, ahead of any prisoner release, uh, people get a right to uh, petition the Israeli Supreme Court. Uh, they've got 24 hours to do that, to try to prevent any particular name uh, being included in the prisoner release. Um, the Israelis have also said, or this deal is also including uh, a, an extension uh, of a day of pause and fighting for every 10 uh, hostages released by Hamas. Um, and uh, Israel will release up to another 150 Palestinian uh, de detainees if up to another 50 hostages are released from Gaza. So it still uh, remains to be seen how that is going to uh, play out. Uh, but in the meantime, I just wanted to highlight this uh, Haaretz article because when the uh, hostages are released by uh, Hamas, what is going to be become of them? Well, they're going to be taken to hospital. Uh, uh, Haaretz saying that meanwhile, six hospitals in Israel are ready to receive the hostages that are said to be released as part of the hostage deal. They've established designated compounds to receive them separate from other patients and the media. So clearly the fact that uh, the media covered uh, the previous release of uh, hostages in the way that it did and that the hostages didn't say quite what the Israeli government wanted them to say, uh, that's going to be managed in the future uh, and uh, no possibility of this group of hostages speaking to the media, media at least not in the way that they did uh, the last time. Uh, in the meantime, the Israelis say that they've set up a new uh, route for people to leave North Gaza. Uh, and they're saying that today uh, people were free to, to use this route between, uh, I believe it was uh, 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. Uh, today. Uh, so there was a pause today already before the official uh, four-day pause begins. Um, now, Israel perhaps doesn't have the best reputation for this. They have bombed uh, people leaving uh, North Gaza in the last few weeks. So we wait to see what uh, happens or what the news is from today. But the next thing I wanted to sort of mention was uh, the emergency BRICS meeting uh, on Palestine uh, that took place. And I just wanted to focus on some of the comments that Xi Jinping has made uh, on that. So uh, he said, China calls for an early convening 
of an international peace conference that is more authoritative to build international consensus for peace. He said the parties to the conflict must end hostilities and achieve a ceasefire immediately. So what's been achieved here is a four-day pause. It's not a ceasefire. Uh, And in fact, in North Gaza during those four days, uh, the the air bombardment will only stop between 10 a.m. and 4 p.m. Each day it's uh, below the the, the demarcation line for South Gaza that they're saying that the bombing will stop for the full four days and completely. But uh, Xi Jinping calling for an immediate full ceasefire. Uh, He's saying that uh, all civilians should be released uh, and that there should be an act to prevent loss of more lives and spare people from more miseries. Uh, He said humanitarian corridors must be kept secure and unimpeded and more humanitarian assistance should be provided to the population of Gaza. And he went on to say that the collective punishment of the people in Gaza in the form of forced transfer or water, uh, electricity and fuel deprivation must stop and that the international community must act with practical measures to prevent the the conflict from spilling over and endangering uh, stability in the Middle East as a whole. So that was the result of the the, the BRICS meeting, the BRICS emergency meeting. And once again, I'm finding it uh, difficult to to find anything to complain about in the words uh, of Xi Jinping there. Uh, So that's uh, up to date with with that. Charles, let's uh, move on to international human rights. All right, thanks very much. This does follow that section closely, particularly the words coming from Chinese, uh, the Chinese president. Um, Vanessa has touched on this several times over the last few weeks. And really, I just want to talk about the fundamental principles in terms of international humanitarian law how it should work and the reality, what does actually happen. So just to set a bit of context, because of course the narrative now is going so strongly in one direction that we are really only permitted to discuss Israel's inherent right to self-defense against an international adversary. So we'll look back to 2014 and a slide from Human Rights Watch in which they refer to the ICC, the International Criminal Court, investigation into war crimes and serious crimes against humanity committed in Palestine. So there is precedent, in a sense, for uh, investigations into the activities being conducted in that area. So we'll just use this as a case study to examine the fundamental nature of armed conflict and the application of of the law. The international humanitarian law itself, from the 1949 Geneva Conventions, has a specific clause, Article 46, which is the prohibition of reprisals. It states, reprisals against the wounded, sick, personnel, buildings, or equipment protected by the convention are prohibited. And in 2016, the ICRC, who manage all of this um, this database, added historical context, they clarify with the prohibition of reprisals against persons or property protected under this convention is absolute. It applies in all circumstances. The possibility to derogate from this rule by invoking military necessity is excluded. However, within the overall context of reprisals is reference to what are called belligerent reprisals. 
And the text on belligerent reprisals uh, explains that such measures may not be carried out for the purpose of revenge or punishment, but only with the aim of putting an end to such violations and inducing the adversary to comply with the law. Although the acts constituting belligerent reprisals are in principle unlawful, their wrongfulness is precluded because of their particular circumstances in which they are taken, i.e. in response to a violation committed by an adversary. And we see, therefore, just as an example from Al Jazeera, this is from the 7th of October, uh, describing Israel retaliation. So immediately the, the killing of 230 Palestinians. Uh, now to look at um, the way that this is regarded within the United Kingdom, and the statute book holds the 2001 International Criminal Court Act, the core of which is uh, sections 51 and 52, which deal with war crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide. And section 52 is of special relevance because it deals with what's described as conduct ancillary to these offences, which means that it's conduct that may be committed outside of the United Kingdom by somebody who is not deemed a British subject, but that is supported by somebody who is either in the United Kingdom or a British subject, which makes this next Guardian headline pertinent, because we see that the Prime Minister, right from the start, has been offering Israel military help if required. Now, we'll just go back a bit to the inception of the International Criminal Court, which was achieved not without some difficulty back in 1998, and going to the Foreign Relations Committee in America, which, interestingly enough, had a certain Senator Joseph Biden on the committee. And Stephanie, if you could just go forward a little bit and highlight Joseph Biden's name on the next bit. And then Biden said, uh, to, in order to express his concerns, just one on, he said, Article 12 of the court statute creates the possibility that non-parties will be subject to the jurisdiction of the court. Now, that raises serious concern about the US forces deployed overseas in countries which are party to the court. US forces overseas could face prosecution by the court, even though we are not a signatory. So critical detail, the United States is not a signatory and nor indeed is Israel. The man who led the delegation in 1998, David Sheffer, is continuing to campaign for the United States to ratify it. And he wrote earlier this year, he quoted uh, Blinken, Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, as saying, we maintain our long-standing objection to the court's efforts to assert jurisdiction over personnel of non-states parties, such as the United States and Israel. And in fact, Blinken earlier in 2021, with specific regard to the ICC investigation into Palestine, went further by saying, the ICC has no jurisdiction over this matter. Israel is not a party to the ICC and has not consented to the court's jurisdiction. And we have serious concerns about the ICC's attempts to exercise its jurisdiction over Israeli personnel. The Palestinians do not qualify as a sovereign state and therefore are not qualified to obtain membership as a state in, participate as a state in, or delegate jurisdiction to the ICC. 
So strong words there from the United States. The point to make is that neither is a signatory, but also that in the rhetoric, they appear to be wanting to have it both ways. First of all, to back Israel's right to inherent self-defense against an international adversary, yet at the same time describing Palestine as not holding the status to denote it as such. So what has the ICC achieved over the last 25 years? I've got a map here which shows the areas of the world that the ICC is currently active in and of the uh, areas that it has dealt with uh, over the last 25 years, there have been uh, 51 defendants um, have had proceedings against them, uh, of which only 10 have resulted in convictions, and all 10 are African. So uh, the, the specific achievements of the ICC are not, not just limited but also very much focused on parts of the world that are not necessarily within the current orbit of the, of the Middle East crisis. Um, in terms of the UK, we look at the Met Police, who have the Counterterrorism Policing Unit, SO15, which is still appealing for war crimes um, in Ukraine. So again, no focus from them on the, um, on the uh, Middle East. Um, but uh, the last thing I want to have a look at, just to set the context, really, when we consider it down at the grassroots level, or indeed the business end, and the potential involvement of British troops in this action, or indeed any other around the world, these are the sorts of things that they should consider. And this is taken from JSP 383 initially, the Joint Services, the Joint Service publication about the law of armed conflict, and then the aid memoir which is the next slide at JSP 381, which in it states that attacks must only be directed at military objectives. They must not be indiscriminate in nature. You must not attack civilians unless they are taking a direct path in hostilities, civilian buildings or property, including cultural property, unless they lose their protected status and you are ordered to attack. Medical personnel and chaplains, hospitals, medical centres or medical transport, civil defence facilities, dikes, dams and nuclear power stations, undefended towns, villages and buildings, or safety, neutralised or demilitarised zones. Enemy combatants who've surrendered, all personnel or objects bearing protective emblems and those protected by a flag of truce. So I'm not in any way trying to point viewers or listeners in one direction or the other, but bearing these things in mind, it is difficult to draw uh, an opinion on exactly what is going on in the wider context, but also how a British soldier or sailor or airman should deal with this situation if confronted with it. Uh, well, the question is, uh, uh, is there any effort uh, with the... Uh, UK government to prevent war in any way, shape or form. And sort of just to illustrate that, let's just have a look at uh, this event. This was the Franco-British Council meeting, uh, which took place a couple of days ago. Grant Shapps, the Defence Secretary there, speaking at that event. Now, of course, this comes out of the Lancaster House Treaties, which was a 50-year defence pact that Britain signed uh, with the French in 2010. In fact, that was absolutely the first thing that David Cameron did. 
when he became prime minister in 2010, uh, and then followed up by Theresa May's Sandhurst Treaty uh, a few years later. Um, so uh, we'll call this Franco-British defence. And I just want to highlight some of the quotes from uh, Grant Shapps' speech here and give us an idea of what Britain's attitude to the current conflict around the world is. Uh, he said, I think we need to acknowledge that the world is rapidly changing. The threats that we are facing are increasing. Hamas shares an ideology with that of Daesh and Al-Qaeda offshoots that are growing in uh, influence across sub-Saharan Africa, for example. The fact that Britain is backing these uh, is, is, in many ways is uh, apparently lost on them. But anyway, behind Hamas lies the malign shadow of Iran, which continues to pull the strings of its other proxies, no matter whether it's Palestinian Islamic Jihad, Hezbollah in Lebanon, and the Houthis of Yemen, or the militants of different locations from Iraq to Syria. So basically, because Iran has been on the list uh, for many, many years, uh, what are we looking at here? A, a desire by Britain to expand the conflict to include uh, Lebanon, Yemen, uh, Iraq, and Syria. I think that is absolutely what we're, we're looking at here. He went on. Uh, and as Iran and North Korea send suicide drones and artillery to Russia, Russia invites Hamas to the Kremlin. So not only uh, is Russia our enemy because of what's happening in Ukraine, uh, but also because uh, Russia is inviting Hamas uh, to Moscow. Uh, and let's continue. Meanwhile, the Kremlin has a no-limits partnership with China, and China, in the midst of massive military and economic expansion, has a mutual defense treaty uh, policy with North Korea. So again, we see that the usual suspects, Russia and China, are absolutely still in these crosshairs as far as the British government is concerned. Uh, and finally, he went on to say uh, that collectively these nations seek to rewrite the international order in their own image. So uh, the thing that's really upsetting Britain then at this point is that the international order, which they uh, wrote in their uh, own image following the Second World War, is at risk. Uh, and so they are looking seriously at conflict with all the countries that we've just mentioned. Uh, so let's just look at Britain's strategy then. Uh, our, their strategy is, first of all, their wholehearted backing for Ukraine. This is how they're going to uh, drive this forward uh, in the next period. They're going to shore up the our international order. It's not clear whose international order that is, but it's uh, who our is, I mean, in this case, uh, which means continuing to bolster NATO, which is the bedrock of our European shared defence. So European Defence Union still on the minds of the British government. Uh, and elevate the, the Entente, he says, increase our efforts to share intelligence, counter-terror, and combat the cyber misinformation that poisons our national debate. So this is clearly uh, also uh, very much part of their mind and their concern is the, the level of what they describe as misinformation and disinformation. Debbie was talking about that a second ago. Uh, this is core to, to how they see the need to drive things forward is to stop uh, any uh, counter narratives appearing anywhere uh, in the national debate. So that's Britain's strategy. It's not a peaceful strategy. They're not speaking the language of peace. It continues to uh, speak the language of war and expansion of the war. Let's move on, Debbie, uh, to, well, I suppose back to behavioral sciences again and Susan Mickey. 
Disinformation behaviour. I'm, I'm on a bit of a behaviour thing this week. So who can forget Professor Susan Mickey? We've covered her loads of times before. Uh, people might know her better as the head of the Behavioural Insights team. She's also been on, uh, sorry, the Spy B. Um, she's also chair of the WHO, the World Health Organization Advisory Group. She's professor of behavioral sciences, but she's also nicknamed Stalin's nanny. Um, apparently, when she was training, she's a member of the Communist Party. And apparently, when she was at university, she would smuggle in communist propaganda in uh, her baby's pram. So there's a, a nice article about more about Susan Mickey, but she'll be very happy because she's just had a nice amount of money deposited in the account for UCL for a new behaviour hub. So you can see that behaviour is still very, very much on the agenda. We are being watched, we are being monitored, and we are being manipulated. And this is a new £10 million hub for behavioural research. But actually, if we go and have a look a little bit deeper in it, we can see that the people that funded it were the Economic Social Research Council. Now, this was the very next day. So on the uh, previous day, the 9th of November, we got told that they'd got 10 million. So they had 10 million for the hub. And then all of a sudden, another 7 million appeared somewhere. So we've got 17 million for the behavioural um, behavioural research within the UK. So if we skip on to have a look a little bit at the Economic and Social Research Council. Now, this is all part of UKRI, um, the UK Research and Innovation, which of course is home office funded. And ER, uh, ESRC is the UK's largest funder of economic, social, behavioural and human data science. But how? Do, what, are, what are their strategies? They've actually got a huge strategic delivery plan. So I've just taken a few sections just to highlight where they're going with this. And you can probably see that it's all about world-class. So they're gonna be world-class people, world-class places, world-class ideas, world-class innovation, world-class impacts, and a world-class organization. And there you can see Professor Alice Parks, who heads it. But where do the ERSC differentiate from the UKRI? And interestingly, in their strategy, they have a nice little graph, and you can see where the differences are in their priorities for the um, ESRC. Sorry, I always get those initials wrong. The Economic Social Research Council. Their priorities are health and social care, security, risk and resilience, digital society, net zero and climate change. So whilst I was on behaviour, I thought I would just go a little bit deeper, like I do. And I found out that we are to get, I believe, a behaviour manifesto. So this is a manifesto for applying behavioural science. And you can see that um, they want behavioural science to fulfil its true potential. Now, this has been written by Michael Hallsworth. So if we just go and look at who Michael Hallsworth is, it's interesting. I think uh, Brian Gerrish might be very interested to know that Michael Hallsworth is the managing director of BIT Americas. He's got a PhD in behavioural economics. He's Imperial in Cambridge, but he also authored Mindspace and the other document that we have featured on the column called EAST, which covers, um, it stands for Easy, Attractive, Social and Timely. And it's another behavioural strategy framework. Um, but he was also senior policy advisor 
to the Cabinet Office. And this manifesto has got 10 goals. And I'll just list them very quickly for you. There's one to six there. So you've got use of behavioural science as a lens, build behavioural science into organisations, see the system, put RCTs into place. Now, RCT stands for Randomised Controlled Trials, Replication, Variation and Adaption, Beyond Lists of Biases. And then for the follow it for the last four, you've got um, Predict and Adjust, Be Humble, Explore and Enable, Data Science for Equity, no view from nowhere. So you can see the behavior agenda is very much moving forward, getting bigger and bigger, and we are being watched seemingly and nudged from every direction. Yes, Debbie, and of course, uh, behavioral uh, science, behavioral psychology being used, uh, Charles, by leaders. And uh, well, it seems that Africa is not immune from this. It seems not, Mike. No, Africa, a continent which, rather like Susan Mickey, has had its head turned at times by communism. What I'd like to talk about today briefly is the ULEAD Summit 2023, which is taking place as we speak in Nairobi, 20th, 24th of November. And um, it describes itself as youth empowerment through that great African development catchphrase, capacity building revitalizing youth voice and agency towards the Africa we want. Now, when we look at the partner organizations, we see that in actual fact, the European Union and the United States are two of those partners. So what exactly is this? What is you lead? What is happening? What auspices does it fall under? And the answer to that is the African Union which you may or may not know, has its own Agenda 2063, the Africa we want. And within 2063, they set out some of the uh, aims and ambitions for the continent of Africa. Aspiration 2 of Agenda 2063, for example, envisions an integrated continent, politically united and based on the ideals of pan-Africanism and the vision of Africa's renaissance. And Aspiration 5 envisions an Africa with a strong cultural identity, common heritage, shared values and ethics. So you might think, given the pushback from Africa on issues such as Ukraine and indeed the global pandemic, that they might be going in a distinctly African direction. However, looking at social media posts from the summit at the moment, we see that in actual fact, it's aligned very much directly with the United Nations Global Sustainable Development Goals. So that's one message which suggests that it's not going to be as distinctly African as we might have imagined. Um, I've also taken an example from one of the participants, Stella Undritu, who talks about her status as a, a woman and uh, the transformation of societal norms with a, a quote from her stating... Stephanie, sorry, can I just go on one, please? Uh, she talks about the mindset, perceptions and social norms in society needs to be transformed to ensure young women are included in the political processes, especially in political parties. She talks about the women being marginalised and financing for affirmative action. So right away, we're dealing with the sort of language that has become very familiar 
in these sorts of forums in other parts of the world. Uh, Concurrent with this has been the World Economic Forum concentrating on borderless travel in in Africa. They actually have a piece put on the screen here to do with the same in this region that the summit is in at the minute. Uh, And what will it mean for Africa's economic growth? They say that in removing visa restrictions and emulating the model of the European Union, the African Union hopes to open a similarly powerful integrated market across the continent. If it can achieve this, it could boost regional income by hundreds of billions of dollars. So what exactly is meant by this? How is it manifesting itself? And indeed, what control does Africa really have over the situation? So we'll look at the uh, what the ECA has to say, which is the United Nations Economic Commission for Africa. So again, not really exactly an African entity, but they talk about rethinking informal cross-border trade. And what exactly is it that they think are the priorities? Well, they say that recommendations include transforming trade corridors into smart corridors, establishing information centers, introducing simplified trade regime, deploying ECOWAS, which is the Economic Community of West African States, national biometric identity cards, establishing gender desks at border crossing, and mainstreaming gender into border officials' training. So uh, it turns out that in actual fact, the African grasp on the direction of travel is not perhaps as tight as it should be. Another slide from the ECA, just, just to highlight the point, concentrates on Africa must cash in on digital payments and systems to boost financial inclusion and economic growth. So really, what's coming out of this summit and the backdrop to it being Agenda 2063 is that in actual fact, the strings are being pulled from mostly further afield uh, away from the continent. And as a reminder of that, considering we were talking about Rwanda on the news last week, albeit for for different but of course related reasons, we should look at the the uh, poster boy of certainly of the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change, uh, to mention one, um, Paul Kagame, president of Rwanda, who is very much heralded by the World Economic Forum as being the change agent for Africa. And I should just quote from the piece that the World Economic Forum puts about Kagame, which states that in July 2016, he was appointed by African Union member states to lead the ongoing reform process aimed at transforming the African Union into an efficient, productive, and financially independent institution, addresses regional and international audiences on a range of developmental and leadership issues. Yes, he certainly does, but not in the same independent way or with the independence of spirit that Agenda 2063 is putting forward that it should do. So really, that's just a short piece to give you an idea of what Africa says is going on, uh, contrary to what it appears is actually going on. Thank you, Charles. Thank you for that. Now, I just want to very quickly uh, end with this. Now, somebody uh, sent me, I think it was Debbie, actually sent me a link to this article in Birmingham Live, talking about the fact that the DUWP is about to set uh, an announcement to strict uh, new bank account rules from Wednesday. This is the uh, snooping on people's bank accounts. But the link that Debbie sent me uh, was this one. Uh, 
Uh, and as you can see, it's an extremely long link. It contains the URL for the uh, actual page itself. But then there's a question mark and a whole bunch of other information on the end of it. And this is uh, tracking information. Some, some of it is tracking information for advertisers. Some of it is tracking information for uh, the website itself and so on. But of course, a lot of what goes on in terms of links that are shared on the internet is designed to track how that information gets sh shared and who the networks are that are sharing particular kinds of information. So we just highlight in uh, yellow there everything that's sort of tracking related information on that URL. Well, I just wanted to make the point that uh, Firefox, the latest version of Firefox, has decided to include a copy without site tracking option uh, if you try to uh, copy the URL uh, of a web page for sharing purposes. And I just wanted to strongly recommend that that is what uh, people should be doing. Uh, let's not give governments the easy and, and advertisers, in fact, the, the easy way of tracking uh, how information gets shared across the internet. Uh, remove all that content that is unnecessary from the URL. Uh, Firefox is now allowing people to do that as a feature. Um, and uh, if that isn't enough to, to move you onto Firefox, uh, I think it should be. But anyway, uh, just to let everybody know that that's a, that's a new feature as of yesterday, I believe. So uh, we're, that's where we're going to finish today. Thank you very much to everybody that's joined us. Thank you to Charles and Debbie. Uh, we'll be back in a couple of minutes for some extra if you're a UK call member. Uh, don't forget the interview tomorrow, but otherwise, uh, please join us 1 p.m. on Friday for the next UK column news. See you then. Bye-bye.